Bugle, audio newspaper for a visual world. Hello, Buglers! It is Friday the 6th of September and welcome to issue 4,121 of The Bugle, audio newspaper for a world of arguably counterproductive visualness. Now, what's that you're saying? What do you mean, issue 4,121? What happened to issue 4,120? Not to mention issues 294 to 4,000. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, those 3,000-odd missing episodes were recorded in a mixture of the future and the past after we slipped through a ferret hole in the space-time continuum and found ourselves simultaneously in the years 3,000 BC and 3,000 AD, or whatever you like to call your years these days. Uh, issue 4,120, by contrast, we have already recorded at last Sunday's Guilty Feminist Bugle crossover of a live show, but that's not going out until next week. So this is now next week's show, brought forward to this week, but covering this week's news as if it had happened this week, which it has, rather than this week's news as if it, a week had already passed, which it hasn't, or next week's news, which may now may or may not happen, as if it's already happened, which it hasn't, depending on when you're listening to this, which, <laughs> in my case... Prorogue the bugle! It's prorogue the bugle! Anyway, the point is, hello! Uh, Hello, buglers. Uh, We're here again. Uh, It's Friday the 6th of September. I'm Andy Zaltzman, no arguments. Uh, And we are here in London, old Squabble Town, UK itself. (laughs) Joining me today to provide some cold-eyed, objective perspective on behalf of the rest of the world on what the f*** is going on (laughs) here in Britain. I'm joined by Aditi Mittal and Tom Ballard. Hello, hello. What the f*** is going on? Is going on. <laughs> well, we will discuss the question of what the f*** is going on in slightly more detail, okay. although we will not find an answer to it because no. there is no answer to it. Um, it's the, the 6th of September. On this day, in the year 1642, the English Parliament banned stage plays. <laughs> if only they'd stuck with that. We'd have a much more grown-up world. Um, uh, due to, quote, lascivious mirth and levity. Um, which, by coincidence, uh, was the stage name of my old double act with John Oliver. Um, uh, other things banned, of course, during the English Civil War and the subsequent Cromwellian social austerity included fun, Christmas, mooning, sniggering, slapstick and computer games. Way ahead of his time. Uh, on this day in 1847, Henry David Thoreau completed his two-year experiment in simple living in Walden Woods, Massachusetts, from which the book Walden emerged. He spent two years, two months and two days in and around a special shed in the woods, doing things like not very much, very little, and absolutely sod all. Uh, it That's was a- what you do now that John's uh, <laughs> left the this double. Is the most British thing in the world. And he wrote a book about it. Well, yeah, it was American, it was in, in America. Oh, so, so. There you go. But, no, but it was very British, yeah. Very but British. at the time when there's still some relics of... <laughs> Of British ability to sit around doing nothing for days at a time. America used to be very British, really. Yeah, in many ways. On the subject of sitting around doing nothing, let's just check the test match score. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, Thoreau wrote uh, uh, wrote about his um, experience uh, of this sort of simple living, introspective lifestyle. Now, bearing in mind that today's world is twenty five. Let's put this in perspective. What he, what he did: this two years, two months, two days on his own in the woods. Uh, today's world is exactly scientists have proved twenty five thousand times more hectic than the eighteen forties. <laughs> Uh, so his period of solitude, to put into some kind of perspective that we can understand, is the equivalent today of being without your mobile for 45 and a half minutes. Yeah. And that is oh that God. is some sacrifice, isn't oh it? Oh, my God. Do you think it will move to a point where we become fully hectic, Andy? Is that, <laughs> is that where we're heading to as a society? I think, I don't know when full, full peak hectic will... <laughs> Will occur and the whole global market will collapse and we'll end up living in caves again, waiting for dinosaurs. It's coming. Um, would it? Would it? Would it be going backwards or forwards? <laughs> uh, 
uh, Thoreau wrote rather graphic descriptions um, of, amongst other things, uh, red ants and black ants fighting to the death <laughs> in his diary in a gruesome festival of dismemberment and decapitation, which shows that even in the most solitudinous of solitudinous situations, humans will inevitably <laughs> tune into some kind of competitive sport. <laughs> Um, and he did, uh, I believe, end up chanting, go black ants, rip their f***ing heads off, red scum. We hate red ants. We f***ing hate red ants. Uh, a few uh, quotes from uh, Thoreau. I find it wholesome to be alone the greater part of the time. To be in company, even with the best, is soon wearisome and dissipating. Well, my guests for today, what do you think of that? <laughs> Sounds like what I say after dating hasn't worked out for a couple of years. Like, no, nah, I'm actually happy like this, actually. Right now it's red ants versus black ants. <laughs> He also said this, I would rather sit on a pumpkin and have it all to myself than be crowded on a velvet cushion. <laughs> and to be honest, I mean, A, that sounds a bit pervy. And B, if you're sitting on a pumpkin, the chances are people will probably give you a wide berth. A, a lot of space. Yeah, yeah. You will have it all to yourself. Yeah. No one's fighting for pumpkin space. <laughs> pumpkin butt space. And he also said, rather than love, rather than money, rather than fame, give me truth. Uh, which are words I think I said to an audience at the Manchester Comedy Store at a gig. <laughs> some years ago, and the truth they gave me was very much, get off your shit. <laughs> um, as always, the section of the Bugle is going straight in the bin. And this week, in the bin, Robert Mugabe. Um, in the bin, he's in the cosmic bin. Robert Mugabe is now Robert Mugabe was. Uh, the, uh, the, the former Zimbabwean president described in some reports as a strong man, which is a polite term for psychopath in high office. <laughs> Um, has, uh, has has popped his uh, dictatorial clogs. Um, uh, Robert Mugabe, a man who took the first syllables of his names very seriously indeed, um, died at the age of uh, age of 95, and, and there's been a, a lot of people calling for a, a, a f**k eulogy for Robert Mugabe, for uh, newer Bugle listeners. The f**k eulogy was a term created by, by John Oliver in the aftermath of the death of uh, Osama bin Laden as a means of uh, bidding farewell to uh, some of the planet's <laughs> biggest c**ts. And... <laughs> I think Mugabe is unquestionably qualified. I think he qualifies for a for a f- eulogy. Please, um, 30-time winner of the Best Napoleon Imitator Award from the uh, George Orwell's Animal Farm Appreciation Society. And that is a hotly contested title. Fair play to the kid. Uh, Mugabe might, of course, have been remembered as a hero who threw off the racist shackles of the imperial era had it not been for the whole eviscerating his own company economically and politically, electoral fraud, brutal repression, corruption, incompetence, letting AIDS victims die, forced relocations of hundreds of thousands of people, ethnic cleansing, general all-round tyranny, built, beating up and or killing his political opponents, and a moustache that unashamedly showcased his leadership style on his upper lip. Apart from that, <laughs> he could have had a different legacy. Well, well you yeah. can nitpick at all these things, yeah. Andy, but no one's perfect. You know, but frankly, yeah, I would rather be oppressed by my own than be oppressed by an outsider. <laughs> and so uh, I, I see where he's coming from. Yeah. I see where he's coming from. Uh, he also ruins Zimbabwean cricket as well, which um, <laughs> unforgivable. His greatest crime? Uh, <laughs> Let history be the judge of that, Tom. Um, <laughs> the revolutionary turned dictator, a classic career switch, a dance as old as politics itself. He was finally ousted from office in a 2017 ousting, since when he failed to land another job, um, despite his uh, impressive CV as a despot, uh, and that was despite reported interest from Hungary and uh, Manchester United uh, when Jose Mourinho left. But it's a lesson to us all. Uh, the life of Robert Mugabe. When someone tells you it's really time for you to do something with your life, that is not always good advice. <laughs> Let's have. If there's one thing we learn from the life of Mugabe, more layabouts. My fondest Mugabe memory is. Uh, <laughs> oh, God, how many times? How many times? I mean, you know, like, Mugabe can you pick one? My friend texted me once saying, Hey, Tommy, you're going out tonight, and I want to text back maybe, but I must have hit wrong buttons, and my text just went with Mugabe. <laughs> 
Magavia will, Magavia won't. <laughs> Oh, that's adorable. We, uh, I, I knew him in school. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, we learned the whole like, I'm a little despot shot and stuff. <laughs> we, we did that together. And so, so I've, I have really fond memories of him as well. I think there was a similar thing to, to, to your story, uh, Tom. And the um, uh, original version of the Carly Rae Jepsen song, Call Me Maybe, yeah. was originally... <laughs> I didn't know that. That's how I learned things. Didn't like the gays. Mugabe? Not a huge fan, no. Described homosexuality as a filthy, filthy disease. Comments echoed by one Andy Zaltzman on every episode of this podcast (laughs) that I've ever appeared on. And he claimed that if Zimbabwe tolerated homosexuality, the dead would rise up against us. Well, now's your chance, Bobby! (laughs) I'm catching a flight to Harare. I've got to start bumming my way across the country. Come and get me, you dead f***! Uh, you know, he's been remembered by a lot of people who are in their 60s as someone who uh, uh, sort of uh, eviscerated their p- uh, pensions and uh, destroyed their incomes and didn't allow them to retire. And then uh, there are 25-year-olds who are like, you know, but the guy that came after him was much worse. <laughs> so we kind of miss him, which is just so damn millennial. <laughs> like, they, they all want, like, you know, remember the time when we used to shit in chamber pots? Because because these modern toilets are too much. <laughs> We're very good at instant nostalgia, millennials, I think, yeah. So, so Robert Mugabe is in the bin. <laughs> Top story this week. Oh, for f**k's sake, Britain, <laughs> is this all we've got? I would like to give you a quick summary of everything that has happened in British politics in the last uh, last seven days, but that would not be possible or indeed desirable for anyone who wishes to be able to face the day with any sense of optimism or hope. It has been an utterly crazy week of... Uh Parliamentary shenanigans of people uh, wanting elections, not wanting elections, people res- resigning, being turfed out, crossing sides, uh, Boris Johnson's brother quitting. Um, it was, uh, and Boris Johnson himself um, saying some truly extraordinary things as he as he tends to. It's hard to say exactly what the situation is now because I've not checked for the last minute and a half. <laughs> And also, you're not going to be listening to this until about at least 24 hours after we record it. So, frankly, who knows? We might be a small province of Iceland by tomorrow. <laughs> we just don't know. But Boris Johnson was uh, was asked at a, at a question after giving a speech in front of a load of police officers who apparently had not been told they were going to be used as a backdrop for some political grandstanding. Um, I mean, it's not the least kind of... <laughs> in terms of visuals... It, uh, standing in front of uh, a lot of people in uniform giving a political speech. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not Nuremberg. No, but, it's Mugabe-esque. You know, it's, <laughs> Mugabe at best. Um, particularly in a non-consensual setting. But uh, I mean, he was, it was a bizarre, uh, bizarre speech in um, which he kind of rambled incoherently for a bit. Um, and then he was asked whether he would uh, delay Brexit. And he said, I'd rather be dead in a ditch than delay Brexit. Now, I have a number of issues with this. <laughs> One, it's obviously not true. Two, yeah, I mean, it is his life. I'm not going to tell him how to live it or not to live it. Three, this is typical Boris Johnson. You know, just anything to get on the television. (laughs) His own corpse in a ditch. You can just imagine the conversation. Dominic Cummings whispering in his ear, Prime Minister, I've got another plan to make sure we control the news agenda for the next 48 hours. Do tell Dominic. You know how people are weirdly obsessed with unsolved crimes? Yeah. Dead in a ditch or delay Brexit. Even in this world of unnecessary binary choices, yes. are those the only two options? <laughs> uh, Where's that referendum? 
Put that to the people. Should we delay Brexit or kill Boris Johnson, dump him into a ditch? Ditch or delay? Now, I'm campaigning for the ditch vote. I know it's a complex question with a binary choice, but I just think that making Boris Johnson dead and putting him in a ditch is what we need to do to take our country back. Right. But, he's putting the question to yeah, the people. Yeah. He's Cameroning it. Okay, he's putting, he's giving us these options. That's right. He's just floating the idea to yeah. see how it plays in the polls, yeah. and then yes. we'll see. Do we want him dead? I mean, I don't want Boris Johnson dead in a ditch. I want him alive in a ditch, permanently, <laughs> like the troll he essentially is. I, but I think you know we'll keep him humanely fed and sheltered sure. and alive, but in a ditch. Yes. Um, ironically, of course, you know he says he wants to be dead in a ditch, but he wouldn't be dead in a ditch for very long. So it's kind of pointless because. People who are dead in ditches tend to get removed from ditches on health and safety grounds. Thank you, Brussels. Uh, just butt out. Let our Prime Minister's choose to be, to be decomposing in a ditch if they want to. And it's... I mean, it's t- t- typical Boris Johnson, isn't it? Just, you know, wanting to get the newspaper headlines. Prime Minister found dead in a ditch. Police suspect overdose of Brexit and all. Um, and it, you know, it's classic for classic Boris Johnson. It would be harrowing for his family. Other people would have to clean up his mess. Classic. <laughs> And also, one, f- one final thing. Why a ditch? Why not? What, where is the patriotism in that? Everywhere has ditches. Why not a good Anglo-Saxon barrow? Um, you know, old Anglo-Saxon burial mound. A proper British barrow. I'm starting to think he's not the real patriot he claims he is. And where is his henge? This, this makes so much sense. Yeah. You know, my favourite thing about that, uh, when he was using, when he was doing that speech... Uh, in front of the police was how one of the cops nearly fainted. Oh, uh, yes. And I was like, I think she fainted because she was like, oh my God, it's an option for him to be dead in a ditch. I think she, she had one of those like joyful swoons, you know. Well, it, um, it, but... It's also possible that she was just, you know, took it upon herself to be a metaphor for Britain as a whole <laughs> as the Prime Minister stood there and proceeded to talk as lucidly as a turd in an engine. Um <laughs> So, so um, Aditi, you were saying to me before we started recording that you, you've been trying to understand British politics. Yeah. And, yeah. and how's, how's that gone? Um, not very well. Right. Uh, I, the only thing I've understood so far is that Boris Johnson seems like an Instagram influencer. Like he comes live and then he says nothing and then he sort of sends these like massive sort of mandates where he's like, I would rather be dead in a ditch and people are not like, yeah, okay, go die in a ditch. (laughs) It's just mind-boggling that people are not like, yeah, go ahead, kill yourself in a ditch. Um, So that's that's kind of what I've understood so far. Uh, I've seen uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg. Yes. uh, Which sounds sounds like the scientific name for like a swamp insect. And he looks like a human straw. um, (laughs) Which... It's kind of like empty on the inside. I don't understand what what, ha- what happened. What was happening in that discussion? Were they not discussing the die part of do or die? <laughs> that he was sprawled out yes. like one of his French girls yeah, to was... be drawn. Like, what was going on? It was truly extraordinary. Uh, it, I mean, for those who've not have not seen it, it is worth looking at him lounging across the seats of the House of Commons as Parliament fretted and frothed about the defining issue of the times, the country tearing itself apart. <laughs> under this unbridgeable chasm that was chiselled open by Jacob Rees-Mogg and, and people like him. And he was there lounging across these seats like some pre-Raphaelite <laughs> lovely, as if to say, I will never find myself sexier than I do now. <laughs> I mean, he had 
a full, <laughs> raging, whole body stonk on for himself, I think, at that point. And there was outrage. The most British thing, even amongst all the horrors, the economic crash that will result as a no-deal Brexit, people still found the time to be outraged about slouching and not having proper f***ing posture in the House of Commons. Slouching in the House of Commons was actually punishable by death right up until 1964. The only exception for that rule was in the House of Lords, where, of course, the curvature of the spine is very common due to the inbreeding. So they do let them off. They did have to kill them. But in House of Commons, if you weren't pushing your shoulders back, you were dead, mate. mate. Brutal stuff. Rightly so. Jacob Rees-Mogg, uh, father of various children, including daughters Anachronista and Hereditor, <laughs> and uh, sons Bilius and Pompous, um, also compared uh, a doctor... Uh, a very eminent uh, NHS doctor who'd warned about the dangers of medicine shortages in the event of a no-deal uh, Brexition with uh, a- another doctor who had uh, endangered the lives of thousands, hundreds of thousands of children by lying about uh, vaccinations, which is the equivalent of comparing a mechanic who's warning that you, that you might want to have new brake pads on your car with someone who has just cut the brake cables on your car. <laughs> They both have something to do with you having a car crash, but it doesn't make them morally equal. Some people are jumping ship. Um, Boris Johnson's brother, Joe Johnson, is out. I'm confused. I don't know whether I find Joe Johnson attractive because I, <laughs> I see photos of him and I think, oh, hello. But I think that's just my brain who's so used to seeing Boris Johnson, who looks like a hairy toenail, and then it sees Joe Johnson and thinks, gosh, there's been a real improvement here. Like, it's so much better than the others. Um... I think Boris Johnson is Joe Johnson's Dorian Gray painting. That's how I would describe it. But asked about the departure of his brother, the Prime Minister said, look, people disagree about the EU. The way to, to unite the country, I'm afraid, is to get this thing done. Now, I'm not sure if that was one continuous sentence or whether just halfway through he let out a moment of terrified honesty. So it'd be more like, the way to unite the country, I'm afraid! Oh, God, I'm afraid! Is to get this thing done. <laughs> It's a very tone of voice. Yeah, tone it's also voice. the tone. I've just read in the text. So yeah, maybe yeah. that's how it works. Unite the country. Surely we can agree at this point that however Brexit happens, it's not going to unite the country. No. Like saying we need to get Brexit done to unite the country is like saying we need to get more tanks on the street to help everyone chill out a bit more. <laughs> I think the only way that it could result in uniting the country is uh, if, if if we accept that you know, Britain is cut, you know, currently sort of sliced into various bits, yeah. is that it will essentially liquidise Britain like a, some, you know, like a Nutri-Blast. And it, and it will come together as some sort of national milkshake. Right. I don't know. I mean, it'll probably be shut out. Into yes, the, uh, possibly. I mean, that's, let's not take that metaphor uh, <laughs> too far. Um, but Joe, uh, Joe Johnson said there was uh, an unresolvable tension between uh, family bonds and his, his loyalty to, to Boris Johnson against the national interest. Uh, Boris Johnson himself made that call long ago and put loyalty <laughs> to Boris Johnson ahead of everything else. Uh, a number of people have. Um, have uh, tweeted and emailed um, us about c- calling Boris Johnson Boris rather than Johnson, as it's sort of over-familiar. I know this irritates a lot of people, and it, does, it is kind of difficult when he, there's a, a other Johnsons involved. So uh, from now on, I will endeavour to call Boris by his, his correct name, which is of Dominic. <laughs> I have to admit, though, that the, my favourite thing about this entire Brexit thing is the weakening of the pound. Oh, or the pounding of the pound, whatever. Because uh, what a joy. What a joy. I used to worry about exchange rates all the time. And now I whip out my debit card. And I use it to buy the depression medication that I need to deal with the state of the world. So thank you. That uh, is one upside. One downside is I don't think I can get a refund on my visa. Is that possible to, like... <laughs> 
exchanged that or anything, or I'm oh. pretty much stuck with that. Yeah, I? I'm afraid. I'm afraid not. No, <laughs> I think we are ba- probably at some point going to go back to uh, an old-fashioned pig-based bartering economy. <laughs> which I think is really what made Britain great in the first place. Yeah. There were mass defections. As you said, Tom, well, not so much defections as expulsions as well. There was a, a glorious moment when uh, Philip Lee, the Tory MP, uh, left the Conservative Party five seconds after Boris Johnson had stood up in the House of Commons to start talking in the Brexit debate this week. And uh, you just saw saw on the TV coverage Boris Johnson's eyes just drifting, drifting to the right as he saw his parliamentary majority of one walking across the chamber to... To sit on the Liberal Democrat bench like a naughty ice hockey player. That's quite a heckle. We've all had walkouts of our comedy shows, but I haven't seen them walk into, like, Daniel Kitson next door and say, I prefer this. He has brought this upon himself by being provocatively divisive within his own own party. And as Machiavelli himself wrote, if you put your cock on a barbecue, someone will think it's a sausage. (laughs) He basically sacked... They sacked 21 of their own MPs, with this majority now of minus one. They then sacked 21 more MPs, removed the parliamentary whip. Now, if you don't know what parliamentary whips are, well, frankly, congratulations. Uh, Try and maintain that ignorance, because it is one of the more baffling elements of... Of, uh, of politics. Does it have something to do with parliamentary BDSM? I think it is something very much along those... I mean, basically, that is what democracy is. <laughs> and it's just a question of who has the whip and who has the chains. Uh, Brexit is Britain saying, tie me up and spank me, Daddy. <laughs> spank me harder. Yes. Unfortunately, we've forgotten the safe word. Um, <laughs> and those electrodes on your balls are firing like crazy. Oh, just have to take your word for that, Tom. Um, so they they sacked twenty one Tory MPs who'd voted against the government in the debate on uh, on uh, basically controlling the legislative agenda and this proroguing of uh, of Parliament. Twenty one, including you know many for, former cabinet ministers, bulwarks of the Conservative Party over decades and uh, and decades um, for the crime of not voting with the government. Now this crime, of course, when Theresa May was Prime Minister was committed by basically everyone who is now in a position of high authority <laughs> in the Cabinet. Now, we might not have a manufacturing sector anymore in Britain, but we can shit 100 megatons of hypocrisy for breakfast. <laughs> There's been so many defections. This week, the British Parliament has had more defects than a household appliance manufactured outside the reach of EU regulations, Andy. That's, that's what I'd say. Luciana Berger left the Labour Party back in February. She uh, believed the party was institutionally anti-Semitic. She joined Change UK. She has now joined the Liberal Democrats, a party so committed to anti-racism and fairness that they accepted former Tory MP Philip Lee, a man who once campaigned against immigrants who are HIV positive from being able to enter Britain. So it's kind of like quitting Radiohead because you think the band's become a bit too self-indulgent. Then a couple of months later, joining a supergroup composed of Bono, Björk and Shia LaBeouf. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> now, despite all this, you, you would have thought with the, you know, the government in such complete disarray and the confusion uh, abound and you know, whether there's going to be this election or not, that the government would be in real trouble. But the Conservatives are 10 points ahead of Labour in the opinion God. polls. Um, I mean, the Conservatives are doing shitly in the opinion polls. Uh, they're around about, I think, 32 33%, but nowhere near as shitly as Labour, <laughs> whom uh, Jeremy Corbyn has driven slowly into some kind of industrial deep freeze. Um the Liberal Democrats are doing less shitly than normal, but still quite shitly. And, of course, with the first past the 
post-system, they, the Brexit Party and the Greens, can do as well as they like, but they still won't get many seats in Parliament because, well, what was right for Britain in the 18th century must be right for Britain now. So we're, we are in this utterly unfathomable situation where, where uh, the government is falling apart but is still in quite a strong position to win an election. There's huge opposition to the government, but it's fragmented in this kind of kaleidoscope of slightly different uh, positions, and um, there is no good way out of this now. And Corbyn has been banging on for election for ages, saying bring on election, bring on election, is now like, uh, actually, hold hold my election, if that's yep. cool. Yes. Oh, God. Yeah. Well, but- I mean, I'm sure it's like that, you know, when Neil Armstrong and, and uh, Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins were sitting in that rocket, they must have thought, uh, can we just give it a few more minutes? <laughs> Just in case it goes badly. Let me rehearse this line again. I'd hate to screw it up when I learn. <laughs> who will we turn to for advice in these troubled times, Andy? Like, you want someone who's smart, like a, a powerful commentator who's knowledgeable about the way the world works? Yeah. And, um... Well, I, I imagine you probably want to turn to former Australian cricket legend Shane Warne. Shane Warne, exactly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah, Shane Warne. Fount one. of all truth. Yep. He's weighed in. Normally, I would think that would be so ridiculous to ask a cricketer their, their opinion <laughs> on a complex political situation. But at this point in Brexit, I'm like, F- it. Why not? Okay, Warney's brain is so addled with alcohol and sexting and hairline treatments. Maybe he'll be able to solve it all with some like lateral thinking. His brain might be molded differently. He was asked what he thinks about the whole thing. He's telling Britain to just get on with it, which is a very hot take. I don't think anyone else has come up with that. So thank you, Warney. He did say Boris is good. Everyone's great. Get on with it. And I love that. Everyone's great. But Boris is just good, implying that Boris is so shit as a human being, he's not even included in the term everyone. <laughs> Which I think is a pretty sick burn from Warney. Um, I mean, there are certain subjects you should listen to Shane Warne on. Yep. Um, the Art of Legspin Bowling. Yep. He's yeah, excellent insight from the greatest exponent of cricket's most difficult skill. Also can be very informative on the game Past the Pigs, of which he is uh, a vocal fan. <laughs> Judging from certain excerpts of his cricket comedy, when he talked, he talk, talked about the game past the pigs for a good fifteen minutes one time. <laughs> about uh, and it is unquestionably a, a terrific game. It's a great game. Wait, so you all had three years, and then this guy came up with get on with it. Yes. Yeah. This 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 is advice that could have come three years ago well, and would have changed yeah. the course of democracy. Well, to be honest, the great problem has not been you know the suggestion of getting on with it. It's just that no one knows what it is. <laughs> We need a follow-up interview with Warney, I think. Yes, and it is a phrase generally used by people who've not really thought through what it is or what it will result in, so... <laughs> Law News now. Uh, Aditi, you are the Bugle's uh, legal uh, correspondent. There's been some uh, sensational uh, court case in Quite in annoying, France. by the way. I studied law for six weeks <laughs> before I dropped out and did comedy. But no, you go on. <laughs> I mean, uh, as as a woman, uh, and especially as an Indian woman on the internet, this is a subject I'm an expert on. Okay. That's right, cocks. <laughs> uh, a couple in rural France took a cock named Maurice and his owner, Corinne, to court because uh, this cock was crowing uh, and not cocking, I guess, uh, at <laughs> 6.30 every morning uh, and therefore um, ruining what is their rural country holiday experience. Having said that, uh, this cock has uh, won the case, which is normally the case with most cocks and uh, uh, the the couple was ordered to pay this cock uh, 1,000 euros uh, which is uh, there is nothing worse than a cock uh, more than a rich cock because yeah. uh, you would have thought in that, that case they'd have been uh, asked to pay a paltry sum Andy it's been a really tough week polit- <laughs> politically and like just as a human in this country and I feel like we don't need to further the pain 
<laughs> feather um, the painter. What? what? Did you say feather the painter? No, I didn't. Oh, right. No, I wouldn't say that, and I never would. I and you deliberately misheard me, actually. I, uh, there hasn't been this much drama around a French cock since Louis the Fourteenth. Hey! This, this, the court uh, very essentially cocking a snook at the, this couple and their complaint, declaring that animal noises are a part of France's heritage, which also explains Daft Punk's latest album. Um, <laughs> but a cock that crows at 6.30 in the morning? Could this be a French cock that's woke? <laughs> that's my uh, <laughs> that's my report. Uh, thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen. Cuckoo, cuckoo, cuckoo. Indian moon landing news now. Um, Aditi, you are our Indian space correspondent. God damn it! <laughs> As an Indian woman on the internet, this is a subject of my expertise. Unsolicited dick. No, wait, sorry, wrong uh, expertise. <laughs> damn it! Damn it! Um, uh, India uh, is going to buy a 1.55 a.m. Uh, this morning, uh, depending on when you're listening to this podcast. Um uh, there will be a uh, Vikram on the uh, surface of the moon tonight. Um, Chandrayaan 2, which has uh, left uh, India's orbit a week ago, has, has sort of uh, dropped off its uh, lunar module uh, onto the surface. This will be the first human uh, space thingy. As I mean, <laughs> clearly as the Andy, expert. come on, give me this correspondence <laughs> portfolio. I'm sorry, but... If you don't know the real terms, uh, Tom, it's... Human space thingy? <laughs> but there's no humans on it, are there? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, apart from the... It's a human-made space. A human-made uh, space. Yeah. Oh, right. yeah. That's the correct term. I apologise. Yeah. I apologise. My degree in human space thingies um, confines me sometimes. That will be landing closest to the South Pole of the moon. Uh, so we're attempting a sort of reverse cowgirl on the surface of the moon. Um, so, you know, one of the greatest things that I, it's like right now, uh, they're going to be watching it live uh, as it descends on the surface of the moon. The prime minister is going to be watching it with a bunch of school kids uh, at one in the night, which I don't know what he's doing with all these kids awake at one in the night. <laughs> Having said that, one of the most delightful things about this is that today, uh, 30 days of the siege into Kashmir where we don't know what's happening in Kashmir but we can watch live footage <laughs> of the moon so um, well, the, the, I was reading that the, the, the uh, Indian uh, moon rover will, uh, will moonwalk at a speed of <laughs> one centimetre per minute and uh, this is the same speed managed by humans on a crowded Mumbai station platform <laughs> um and uh, the, the area it's landing, the temperature can uh, veer between 1,000 Celsius uh, when the sun shines and minus 170 Celsius, which is the same as in Britain if our whinging about the weather is any guide. <laughs> um, and apparently the, uh, the, there's two, there's an orbiter and a rover and uh, a lander, and they're, they're going to... They're going to take selfies. <laughs> <laughs> Millennial spacecraft. <laughs> this is so I vain. mean, that's how human space thingies work. Right, okay, okay, that's the that's, human that's element. Human uh, well, that brings us to the end of uh, this week's uh, bugle. Um, do tune in next week when we will have last week's bugle. <laughs> um, and depending on what happens in Britain, we may have next week's bugle next week as well. Right. Um, so we'll see. We'll see what happens. Okay. Um, uh, in the meantime, oh, some exciting tennis. Serena Williams, age thirty-eight, is playing Bianca Andreescu, a nineteen-year-old Canadian. In uh, I think this is the biggest age gap in a Grand Slam tennis final for let's call it in layman's terms a f- 
heck of a long time. <laughs> um, and, well, from an Australian point of view, if Serena Williams wins, she will equal Margaret Court's record of, uh, of most Grand Slam wins, which I think is 24. And the big question is, can Serena, A, equal Margaret Court's record, and B, do it without then becoming a religious fundamentalist who hates gays? <laughs> That's the big challenge for Serena. I believe in you, Serena. <laughs> can, I think she could probably pull off both of those. Yeah, good luck. Uh, Margaret Court uh, did the first half all right. <laughs> Um, on the cricket, uh, do tune in to the unbelievable podcast. Can you tune into a podcast? Tune into it. I mean, it just seems sort of the right term to use uh, that I do with Felicity Ward about about the Ashes uh, this year. So uh, I banged on about cricket too much on the bugle last week. Do listen to Unbelievable um, as uh, the series comes towards its thrilling conclusion. A couple of gigs to alert you to. Alice Fraser. Uh, Bugle co-host extraordinaire is recording Savage, her brilliant stand-up show on the 10th of September at the Malt House Theatre in Melbourne, Australia. Tiff Stevenson has a show at the Union Hall in New York on the 14th of September. And there are Bugle live shows in Glasgow and Newcastle on the 7th and 8th of October. Do go to all of those, um, but don't fly there because it's bad for the environment. Just run very fast. Aditi, do you have uh, any shows to plug? Uh, 9th through 14th of September I am performing at Soho Theatre and on the 13th there will be a special recording uh, for an online uh, platform and so uh, please come by Uh, tickets are available on the internet Tom, anything to plug? Uh, Well, this comes out on Saturday tonight I have my final night at the Soho Theatre of my show Enough and then I'm just around (laughs) Just just hang around around. Just find Tom on a bench (laughs) (laughs) Who books that, actually? <laughs> <I'll> put, <laughs> Who I, know, books I know I know, some people. You know a guy, thanks. Um, and uh, well, I, I'm, I will be back at Soho Theatre with my annual uh, end-of-year uh, Andy Zaltzman's The Certifiable History Show um, in December and January. Details forthcoming. Uh, thank you very much for listening, Buglers. Do enjoy the spectacular sight of Britain tearing itself limb from limb over the next <laughs> few days. And we'll be back next week. Uh, until then... We will play you out with some more lies from our premium voluntary subscribers. To join them to contribute uh, whatever you want to The Bugle on a one-off or recurring basis, go to thebuglepodcast.com and click the donate button. It's now time for the lies. John Forrester frequently wonders if there is any more tragic creature in the universe than the ambitious goldfish. I mean, just imagine. Nicola Lawson thinks that, given the enduring success of ice hockey as a sport, other traditionally non-ice-based sports should try an ice-based version. She would particularly like to see ice pole vaulting, ice trampolining and, above all, ice horse racing. David Murphy quite likes the Eiffel Tower, but would prefer it if all the gaps were grouted in. Anonymous donor MS heard about the Hanging Gardens of Babylon and thinks that no matter how badly behaved the gardens had been, that was way too severe a punishment. Peter Durietz calculated that climbing the 8,840-metre-high Mount Everest was equivalent to going up the stairs at his house approximately 2,430 times. I'd probably do that in a year, boasts the amateur mountaineer. It's no big deal, and it's a hell of a lot safer. Anonymous donor BS once spent 15 minutes admiring what he thought was an intriguingly modern stained-glass window in a shop. 
before he realised that it was in fact a television showing a prolonged safety exchange in a defensively-minded snooker match. James Vincent does not think the hammerhead shark has been correctly named. This realisation came after he tried to use a toy replica hammerhead shark as a hammer. It did not work. He injured his hand. Nicole McLaughlin invented an automatically rotating lid and an automatically rotating jar, but forgot to make them go in opposite directions, so has quietly shelved the products for now. Tony Ayuto thinks fewer countries would go to war if the United Nations banned all weapons apart from the toy lightsaber and all forms of military transport apart from unicycles. David Allen, despite not being the 1960s England cricketer of the same name, sometimes wakes up in the middle of a dream in which he's been selected as an off-spin bowler for England in a test match against West Indies at the Oval in 1963, a match for which, of course, Allen, the cricketer, was not selected. Simon Witham thinks national productivity would be improved in all countries if the main evening news bulletin concluded with the newsreader saying, That's all for today. Now, bedtime. Come on, you've got an early start in the morning. Off to bed with you. And Michael Ford does not think pigeon racing will ever be as big as football as a global spectator sport, but does think that some kind of 11-a-side game involving trying to get a ball into a goal played by pigeons might be absolutely sensational. Here endeth this week's lies. Hi, it's producer Chris from The Bugle here. Did you know that I have a new series of my podcast, Richie Firth Travel Hacker, out now? It's the show where Richie Firth and I talk about how to make travel better in our very special way. In this series, we discuss line bikes, Teslas, the London Overground, and a whole bunch of other random stuff that possibly involves wheels or tracks or engines of some variety. God, what a hot sell this is. I mean, you, you, you must be so excited. Listen now.